When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, well, it's the end of 2021. I think it's time to think about calendars. We're going to 2022. You need your new calendar. You need your new diary already for the new year. And so in this podcast, we're going to be focusing more on time. We're going to be focusing in on how Julius Caesar changed time. One of his greatest legacies has nothing to do with military victories, with military conquests. It's to do with an action near the end of his life where he changed the calendar. He reformed the calendar of ancient Rome. He created the Julian calendar. Now, to talk through how this all came about, why there was this reform to the calendar at the time of Julius Caesar, and its huge, important, remarkable legacy, I was delighted to get on the podcast Dr. Philip Nottaft. Now, Philip He's done work in Oxford. He also works in Ireland at Trinity College Dublin. He knows a lot about calendars, not just in ancient history, but also in medieval history. And this was a really enlightening chat, particularly for someone like myself, who until recently never really fully realised the huge encompassing legacy of the Julian calendar and still how it influences people to this day. Philip, it was wonderful to have him on the podcast to talk about this huge topic for the end of 2021. I really do hope you enjoy. And finally, a small thing from me. It's the end of 2021. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to the Ancients podcast over the past year. It has been so much fun and it's been so wonderful to see the genuine interest and the growth of this podcast, explaining why ancient history really is the coolest type of history of all. But stay tuned, this is only the beginning. We've got some huge plans for 2022, so don't go anywhere. Anyways, that's enough from me, because without further ado, here's Philip to talk all about how Julius Caesar changed time. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Pleasure. Now, this is an amazing topic. The emergence of the Julian calendar, how Julius Caesar changed time, as it were. Okay, I know it's not that straightforward, but it's a a fun title. But can we say the creation of the Julian calendar during the time of Julius Caesar? Philip, this feels like one of the, the watershed moments in the whole of Roman history. Yes, I mean, I think that's largely because it coincides with a number of other momentous developments, right? The end of the Roman Republic and the way being paved for the imperial period And so if you look at it in context, it's, of course, just one of many political reforms that were carried out by Caesar during the the three or four years of him being a dictator. But it's the one reform that has really stood the test of time, as it were, and is still in effect to a very large extent. Yeah, literally has stood the test of time. You're quite right there. Let's delve into the background first of all then. So Roman calendars 
before Caesar. What do we know during the Roman Republic? What do we know about these calendars? Well, basically not very much, but one thing that we have to look at in order to really understand what was going on is the bigger picture of calendars in antiquity. Uh, if you look at not just the Mediterranean world, but also the near and Middle East, East Asia, India, and, and also, in fact many other territories besides, you can make a generalization to the effect that up until the year 500 BC, very roughly speaking, the vast majority of attested ancient calendars were lunar in character, and they were all quite similar in the way they operated. That's not too so surprising in a way because there's a sense in which the moon is humanity's oldest scheduling instrument, uh, in the sense that you don't have to be a genius or an astronomer to notice the waxing and waning of the moon, to notice the fact that this is a cyclical phenomenon, and you can use that cycle to measure or to gauge the passage of time. We have this expression in English of many moons ago that in a way is an artifact of an ancient practice of counting the number of lunations between two events. And once you're there, you can also start to use particular moments within a lunation cycles such as a full moon to schedule meetings or religious rituals or the start of a military campaign and the next step would be to actually count the number of days within the lunation and use that as a framework for organizing a society and for organizing various practices uh, the ideal moment for starting that count of days will be the disappearance of the moon once every lunation the moon disappears between one and three days and you can either use the last visibility of the thin crescent of the moon or what's more common in antiquity, the first visibility after invisibility to mark the beginning of a month and then you count forward 29 or 30 days depending on how long it takes and uh, that will be the kernel of a proper lunar calendar. 12 iterations of a lunar month will give you a lunar year which will align very roughly with the change of the seasons but it doesn't take very long to realize that sometimes you have to count 13 months to get back to a particular seasonal parameter such as the beginning of spring whatever it may be. So most ancient lunar calendars have this practice of occasionally intercalating or adding a 13th month. And the general sort of uniting characteristics of most ancient lunar calendars up until a particular point in time, middle of the first millennium BC, is that they're very ad hoc and not pre-planned and very flexible. That is, uh, decisions as to whether to insert an extra month or the decision of how long a particular month is going to be is left up to the discretion of maybe a ruler or a magistrate, a political body, a priestly college or something of that nature. And it's impossible for an individual to really predict in advance how long a particular year is going to be. And uh, that is a general situation which, which also would have applied to Rome early on in the early Republican period and even beyond that in, in the sort of mythical pre-Republican period. And one artifact of that practice is the division of a month into calends, uh, knowns and ides. The calends are always the first day of a particular month and are a reference point for counting other days, counting them backwards as a matter of fact. And the term calends uh, derives from calare, which in turn is a, a loan word from Greek. It essentially means to call together or to assemble and to summon. And probably this is a reflection of the fact that early on the beginning of a month in Rome would have been announced at a monthly assembly by a magistrate or by a priest because it depended on the moon actually being Cited, and that being the basis for beginning a new lunar month. And the Ides, for instance, would have coincided originally with a full moon. The knowns are simply the ninth day counted inclusively prior to the full moon. And so you have this lunar framework in the Roman calendar, which eventually is abandoned or at least uh, is, is slightly 
weakened and altered in various ways. So we can talk about that maybe in, in a minute. But the general idea is that the Roman calendar initially was no different from most other calendars that we have any evidence for, based in the sense that they were all lunar, all very flexible, ad hoc, and subject to the arbitration of political and religious bodies. I'll tell you what, Philip, like, as a, as a scholar of this, and like, approaching this from the 21st century, this idea of a flexible calendar is very, very... Uh, unusual indeed. It's so interesting to think that these ancient societies, you know, whether it was very early Republican Rome or before Republican Rome, they could change the length of a year, the length of the calendar, if they so wished. Yes, and initially there there was a very good reason for this. This was the only viable method really to keep the calendar aligned with the astronomical phenomena, with the moon and the sun or with the seasonal cycle. Because uh, if you try to have a pre-planned fixed calendar that is similarly accurate in astronomical terms, you need quite a bit of astronomical expertise and, and that creates certain complications. And so having, a, as it were, an empirical calendar that's very ad hoc in the way it's adjusted is much easier. But of course, it also creates a leeway for political bodies to tinker with the calendar calendar to make changes out of convenience, uh, right? There's, for instance, evidence that in ancient Greek polities, sometimes days were inserted simply for convenience. Maybe there's an important festival coming up and there's not enough time for a theatrical troupe to arrive. And so an extra three days are inserted to make some allowance for that. Months might be prolonged or years might be prolonged. So there's more time for deliberations, for the passing of laws for ceremonies. So there's lots of evidence, especially in the Greek world, where each polis has its own separate calendar, that calendars are being manipulated in that way on a very ad hoc basis. And the same is, of course, also true in Rome. But in the specific case of Rome, this type of tinkering caused a certain misalignment between the calendar and the seasons quite early on. And what the Romans also did, and that's rather unusual, at some point during the Roman Republican period, they altered the length of the month permanently. So in a normal lunar framework, a month will either be 29 or 30 days, depending on when exactly the, the crescent of the moon is sighted. But the uh, Romans implement fixed length for these months of 31 days or 29 days, or in the case of February of 28 days, nobody really knows why. But for the most part, all the numbers in the Roman calendar start to be counted as uneven numbers, maybe for some religious reasons. And so they develop a calendar which is no longer even notionally attached to the moon. It just works uh, according to its own scheme. At the same time, the intercalation, which is also rather odd because it consists in periods of 22 or 23 days, which are inserted on average every other year, that intercalation is still very much at the discretion of a pontifical college. And there's a lot of evidence, especially towards the end of the Roman Republican period, that the priests are susceptible to political influence, to bribery, to other forms of pressure, to either intercalate or not to intercalate. For various reasons, uh, tax farmers had a vested interest in having more time at their disposal to actually collect taxes or an intercalation was beneficial to them. Magistrates might have had an interest in having a longer term in office, so there's more time to pass legislation. Others, such as Cicero, who at one point he is marooned, right, around 50 BC, 51 BC, he is marooned in Cilicia as a proconsul, and he very much hopes that there won't be an intercalation so he can get home earlier, and he actually tries to get his friend Atticus to make his political influence felt in Rome to prevent an intercalation from happening. So you can see how the calendar is under a lot of political pressure and can be 
influence at very short notice. And also that creates a situation where even in February, when the intercalation is supposed to take place, uh, most people have no idea whether it's actually going to happen or not. And uh, that creates a lot of uncertainty, obviously. And the other issue which we can talk about is the fact that the uh, Roman calendar is increasingly whacked out of alignment with the seasons at various points in its history. And is this one example of that when that happens, Philip, at this time, the end of the Roman Republic, that you do see this real disalignment with the seasons? Yes, yeah, so already, like, for instance, at the beginning of the second century BC, if you compare, for instance, eclipses of the moon, which we can date very reliably using our astronomical knowledge, you compare the recorded Roman date, you can see that at the beginning of the second century BC, the month of July would have fallen in, in, in early spring. And that situation was corrected later on, but the same type of chasm had re-emerged in the 50s BC once again. And that's why, as part of the Julian reform, 90 days had to be inserted into the calendar, or 67 days, depending on how you count it. The point is that there was one year in Roman history which had 445 days in total, which is the year 46 BC. And that the elongation of the year was all about restoring a traditional alignment between individual months and their seasonal context, because there are obviously certain religious feasts which have some at least notional connection to the seasons, to the agricultural cycle, and to have a complete mismatch would have been perceived as a problem, at least by certain people. That's also interesting. And before we really delve into the detail of how these reforms come about and, and how they are processed, as it were, under Caesar, I would first, like of all, because I've got it here... I'd love to talk about a particular artifact from the late Republic just before Caesar, because it does seem to be really interesting. I'd never heard of it before, before doing some research for this. And this, you probably know I'm going, the Fasti Antiates Maiores. Now, Philip, what is this? Yeah, so that's essentially a painted wall calendar from the very end of the Roman Republic, right? This is a calendar which existed, as it were, at the eve of the Julian reform. It would have been created roughly between the 80s and 50s BC, and it was discovered, I think, in 1915 at Anzio, the ancient city of Antium. It's now displayed in a museum in Rome. And of course, it's a very fragmentary archaeological artifact, but we can still use it to reconstruct what this calendar would have looked like quite reliably. And the comforting thing is that it gives us a picture of the Roman calendar, which aligns pretty closely to what we know from written sources, right? It's, it's reassuring to know that the sources aren't completely fantastical. It does confirm that we have these 31 day-long months, uh, four of them, and then the other months are 29 days in length except for February, which is 28 days, and then has this slot in the middle where the intercalary days will be inserted every other year, roughly speaking. It's also a calendar which marks the difference between so-called dies fasti, which is allowed days for certain legal actions and for litigations in courts, and dies ne fasti, which are so-called banned days, and also it marks the assembly days for political assembly. It contains a lot of information, and it gives us a rough idea of what the Roman uh, calendar was like in Cicero's time, essentially. That's brilliant. So you have this archaeological evidence to, as you say, to back up, let's say, Cicero's comments, which you mentioned earlier. That's fascinating for ancient history to have the archaeological evidence, which is backing up the literary evidence as background. We're not even on Julius Caesar himself yet for the Julian reforms. It's like for your, for your field, that must be brilliant. 
It is brilliant. I mean, there's certain questions which a wall calendar cannot answer, and that's particularly the nitty-gritty of when and how to intercalate and how that intercalation practice changed over time. The intercalation practice in theory is, of course, all about maintaining an alignment between the calendar and the seasons. And since that intercalation happens in an ad hoc way and is subject to political decisions, a wall calendar cannot give you an account of what exactly happened but it gives you the basic structure of the calendar. Well, let's then go on to the Julian reform itself, the emergence of the Julian calendar. So from what you were saying earlier, Philip, is it primarily the needs for this calendar at this time? Is it primarily, can we say, an agricultural reason that it's introduced? Well, I think Caesar himself had agriculture in mind. There's really a, a mixture of motivations here. We should probably point out that we have no documentation that would give us a reliable picture of what Caesar himself may have thought, right? Contemporary sources on the Julian reform of the calendar are practically non-existent, right? We have to base ourselves on much later accounts. So it's a bit difficult to really get inside Caesar's head. I mean, first of all, there was this issue of the seasonal misalignment. That in principle could have been solved by a very simple correction and that could have left the basic structure of the Roman calendar intact. But of course, Caesar did something else. He introduced a new calendar. He changed the operating system, as it were, of the calendar from a quasi-lunar arrangement into a solar calendar based on an Egyptian model. If you look at sort of the motivations that, that might have been behind this major change in the Roman calendar, first of all, what he accomplishes is to introduce a very fixed, a very regulated, a very predictable calendar, which essentially depoliticizes the intercalation, right? So, so the power to make changes on a whim is sort of uh, taken away from the priests and from the Senate. He also creates a calendar because it's so predictable and so fixed and, and regular, is ideally suited to the administration of an increasingly vast Mediterranean empire. That might not have been on his mind, but it certainly explains why this calendar remains in place for so long throughout the rest of Roman history. And then finally, and this is something that Caesar was certainly interested in, he realized that with this new solar calendar, which represented the actual length of a solar year, he could create the backbone for a so-called parapegma. A parapegma is a type of Greek almanac which correlates stellar phenomena, such as stellar phases, the visibility and the rising and setting of constellations, with agricultural and meteorological events and phenomena. That's an ancient Greek practice to draw up these parapegmata. And Caesar realized that with his new calendar, he can use the actual calendar as the backbone for such a parapegma because you can assign all these agricultural and astronomical events to individual dates in the calendar. And so apart from promulgating a reform of the calendar, he also published a, an agricultural almanac, if you so will, a Caesarian parapegma, which has not survived, but we have secondhand quotations, which give us some, some sense of what it actually contained. So yes, agriculture, in a sense, was on his mind, on his own mind, when, when he decreed that reform. Philip there, you mentioned, you mentioned astronomy, so I kind of want to keep on that a moment. Does it therefore seem to be this influence of, of Greek astronomy on the creation of this calendar, and particular figures such as Hipparchus? Yes, so they're, they're really sort of two basic influences that account for the shape the Julian calendar effectively took. There's the Egyptian background. I mentioned earlier how up until the year 500 BC, all those calendars are lunar. There's one very significant exception, and that's the Egyptian calendar, which already in the third millennium BC 
switched to this highly regular 365-day arrangement, where you simply have a year of 365 days, which never changes its, its length and which always remains the same. We believe, most historians would argue, that the reason the uh, Egyptians opted for this very unusual format is because of the very high degree of dependency of the Egyptian culture and economy and society on the annual flooding of the Nile, the whole Nile flooding cycle. In fact, this calendar year was divided into three seasons, as it were, which all were connected to the high tide and low tide of the Nile, so to speak. And uh, the solar year of the Egyptians remained an anomaly for most of ancient history. However, then around 500 BC, Egypt is annexed by the Achaemenid Persian Empire, and the Persians start to adopt a version of this Egyptian calendar. And of course, uh, only one or two years before the Julian reform, Caesar is in fact physically in Egypt as part of the civil war, and he has a opportunity to take in some new influences from Egypt. And one of these seems to have been an interest in the Egyptian calendar. At the same time, of course, we're now at this stage in history, we're talking about a Greco-Egyptian culture, specifically in Alexandria. And there is, of course, a Greek astronomical tradition, which uh, pays particular attention to the length of the seasons and to the length of a so-called tropical year, which in, in an ancient context is the, is the interval between two vernal equinoxes. And it's really the Greek astronomers, more so than other astronomical traditions, who try to solve the question of how long is a year exactly and how long are the seasons exactly. And so by certainly the second century BC, you have some fairly precise knowledge to the effect that a tropical year is slightly shorter than 365 and a quarter days. In fact, already in 238 BC, the Ptolemaic ruler of Egypt at that time, Ptolemy III, tries to pass a decree, or at least he drafts a decree, which would have provided for the insertion of a leap day every fourth year, very similar to the later Julian calendar. His goal at the time was to have a feast day in his honor remain connected or remain associated with a particular astronomical event, namely the annual heliacal rising of the, of the star of Sirius. And in order to maintain that synchronism, this leap day would have been inserted based essentially on Greek astronomical knowledge. But that decree never took effect in Egypt, but it's possible that Caesar still knew about that precedent or that his advisor, it's quite likely that he had scientific advisors who were originally based in Alexandria. We know of one name, Sosigenes, a Greek astronomer who is quite plausibly from Alexandria, and they may well have had some notion of this 3rd century BC precedent as it were. But yes, in very simple terms, there is a confluence of Greek astronomy and Egyptian calendrical tradition, which account for the Julian calendar as it then uh, became law. Let's go on to the Julian calendar then itself. And you mentioned how we don't have any like contemporary literary sources, as it were. But we do have a later source, don't we? One particular later source, which gives us a lot of detail about sorry, the precise steps involved in this reform. What is this? Yes, yeah, so the most uh, detailed and verbose account is in the Saturnalia by Macrobius. Macrobius is, of course, himself a, a Roman magistrate of the beginning of the 5th century. I think he wrote that text roughly in the second quarter of the 5th century. And the Saturnalia is a very entertaining dialogue between a number of 4th century 
Roman aristocrats and uh, in one very lengthy section of that work they discuss the whole history of time reckoning and especially calendrical reckoning, especially in Rome. What Macrobius does here is to combine various bits from a long-standing antiquarian tradition in Rome that goes back to the first century BC of Roman scholars trying to understand their own institutions. And of course, there's a lot of guesswork there and a lot of myth-making and etiological myths being sort of created to explain certain phenomena. But there's also some reliable information there. And of course, when it comes to the Julian reform that is sufficiently close to recorded history for us to be able to take most of what Macrobius says at face value. And so what are these steps, Philip? Well, first of all, as mentioned earlier, there was this uh, requirement to somehow get the month of the Roman calendar back into alignment with the seasons. And for that purpose, Caesar decreed this unusual year of 445 days. The big change compared to the previous Republican calendar was the insertion of 10 new days, which were distributed across different months. So some months acquired two new days, others only one day. The precise way in which this was done was guided by the requirement to be as conservative as possible. There was an attempt on Caesar's part not to interfere with feast days, the way the feast days related to the way that the days were counted backwards from the calendar's eyes and knowns, not to interfere in the accustomed intervals between important feast days. So for religious reasons, basically, it was a very conservative approach to inserting extra days into the calendar. But essentially, the calendar was bumped up from 355 to 365 days per year. And then the other major component is this new leap year rule uh, of inserting an extra day in February every fourth year. And does Caesar also leave his personal mark on it? I'm thinking with the renaming of a certain month. Well, subsequent to his death, the Senate passes a law to Ah. rename the month of Quintilius into Julius or July in his honour. And that is repeated then uh, subsequent to the death of of his nephew Augustus. As a result of that, Sextilis becomes the month of August or Augustus. So that's the way he leaves his mark, of course, not by his own decree, but uh, but, uh, as a result of the honours bestowed upon him after his death. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But it's so interesting, though, those facts you get. You just, you've, got Rome, you've got Rome in the calendar of today with July and August, don't you? That is quite something. And something which I also find really interesting, Philip, is that perhaps one of the most famous dates of the new Julian calendar from ancient Roman times is the date of the man who oversaw the creation of this new calendar's assassination barely a year after his creation of the Julian calendar. Yeah, yes, the infamous Ides of March. Uh, That is correct. And of course, you know, without his reform, that would have been a different date in history. Welcome to Gone Medieval, the podcast that will dust off and polish up some of the medieval period's most fascinating characters and stories. So this is a really kind of funny way where, you know, medieval people differ from us immensely because as far as they are concerned, sexual desire and interest in sex is a feminine trait. It's a very difficult one, isn't it? I mean, I think that Henry I did not probably intend to be buried under a school. And he is one of the great kings of medieval history. We found that about 18% of our sample had evidence of bunions. So we think this change over time is directly related to the type of footwear that people were wearing. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. And on Gone Medieval, we'll tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And so following Caesar... And following Augustus, you know, August and July and all of that, the calendar, it outlives Caesar, it outlives Augustus, and it becomes one of the longest-lasting, shall we say, legacies of ancient Rome. Absolutely, yes. In a sense, it has never disappeared. I mean, the calendar we use today is, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same, with the exception of one small detail concerning the leap year rule, but otherwise, structurally, nothing has changed about the calendar at all. It's still begins on the same day, on the 1st of January, that the month have the same names, the same length, right? We still use Caesar's calendar. And how, how influential is the Christian church, and the early Christian church in particular, in preserving this calendar like, throughout the centuries? I think the church was maybe not so important in preserving it. I think that's largely due to the persistence of the Roman Empire, which, depending on how you look at it, only ended in 1453 or 1806. But the church is absolutely instrumental in its diffusion beyond the accustomed or traditional borders of the Roman Empire. If you think of territories such as Ireland, right? Ireland adopts Christianity around 400, maybe, in the 5th century. As a result of Christianization, they also adopt the Julian calendar. The same happens in other parts of the world. For instance, Ethiopia, which is Christianized in the 4th century, adopts the Alexandrian calendar, which is a localized Egyptian variant of the Julian calendar. And so maybe to over generalize you can say wherever christianity goes throughout its long history of expansion so does the julian calendar as a result 
I mean, Philip, that's so interesting. So during the, the time, of, let's say, the late Roman Empire, were there several different localised Julian calendar versions from wherever you were based in the Roman Empire? That's right. I mean, the Julian reform of the calendar only takes immediate effect in Italy and in parts of the Western Roman Empire. And it takes a while, maybe until the end of the reign of Augustus, that uh, more far-flung parts of the empire, such as the Levant and, and Arabia and, and, and Asia Minor, follow suit, and they often do so as an express way of showing the loyalty to the emperor. But what happens in these more far-flung eastern parts of the empire is that they create localized versions. So they maintain the traditional beginning of the year. They tend to maintain their own names for the months, but they make sure that the year has 365 days, and they make sure to intercalate uh, one day every four years. So for instance, the Alexandrian calendar, which I just mentioned, is for all intents and purposes, the old Egyptian calendar with an extra leap year inserted, right? Yeah. But in a way, it's synchronous with the Julian calendar because once you know where the year begins relative to the Julian calendar, you can figure out the precise relation between these calendars without having to calculate a lot. So in a sense, they all go in lockstep from maybe the first century AD onwards. I see that that diffusion of the calendar, not just in the Roman Empire, but also, as you mentioned earlier, outside the borders of the traditional Roman Empire and outlasting it. And let, let's go back to Ireland then for a bit, like the, and the early medieval period, because I know you've done a lot of work around this. And it's really interesting, because uh, explain to me this early medieval Irish link between the Julian calendar and its Roman roots going back to Caesar. Yeah, I think what makes the case of Ireland interesting is that Irish monks, who of course developed a very flourishing and very sophisticated learned culture subsequent to Christianization. To them and to Irish audiences in general, the Julian calendar was a bit of a foreign object, like compared to most of the rest of the Christian world, which had been influenced by the Roman Empire prior to the Christianization. Here you have a culture which learns Latin as a foreign language and also adopts certain elements of Roman culture as, as it were, as, as a foreign element. And so that creates a need to explore what the Julian calendar is, the meaning of its individual months and various other structural issues. And so it's no accident, perhaps, that Ireland becomes the epicenter for the development of a new type of learned text or learned discipline, which becomes extremely influential in medieval Europe, which is known as the computus, which is a type of discipline or text which is all about explaining the calendar, its astronomical underpinnings, its historical background, and then first and foremost, as its most important purpose, explaining how to calculate the dates of Easter and other mobile feast days. So in a sense, teaching the fundamentals of the Roman calendar is just a preliminary step towards talking about the date of Easter. But still, for this reason, computistical texts transport a lot of historical knowledge and also etymological knowledge about the old Roman calendar and make sure that throughout medieval European history, Pretty much every educated person would have known about the pagan background of the Roman calendar, would have known about Julius Caesar and his role in introducing that calendar. It all remained common knowledge and also fairly accurate knowledge, thanks to this existence of the computus as a genre that transports knowledge on calendrical issues. I mean, that's absolutely astonishing when you think, let's say in the early Christian world, Philip, in various other ways, there is an attempt to very much to deride the pagan Rome before them is this place of decadence, this horrific place compared to the great, you know, the good Christian world that comes after it. But as you were saying, for the legacy of the Julian calendar in this early medieval Irish period, there's an, a welcomeness almost to show that learning to emphasise the background of this calendar from where to discuss it, to focus on it, to learn more about the calendar and how it can be, can we say, improved in several ways. 
Yeah, that, that is uh, absolutely right. And of course, the Latin medieval Christian attitude towards especially Julius Caesar and Augustus tends to be relatively positive, right? Because they were seen as sort of historical agents which paved the way for the Roman Empire and for the spread of Christianity more generally. And, and, and Caesar has a relatively positive image in the Middle Ages, right? It's no accident that Dante places his assassins, Brutus and Longinus, in the innermost depth of hell, right? Fair enough, fair enough indeed. And also I've got the figure, one of the most influential figures of early medieval history, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but the Venerable Bede. He also seems to be influenced by this too. Yes, I mean, Bede picks up lots of cues and influences from this Irish computistical tradition and he writes what effectively becomes the most influential calendar textbook of the entire Middle Ages, a work called the Temporum Ratione, which he wrote in 725. And that is sort of the classical computistical text, which has several chapters on the history of the Roman calendar. And a lot of the information that is common knowledge later on can be derived or can be traced back to this particular text. He wasn't the first writer in this story, but certainly the most influential and widely read one. So is it fair to say, Philip, that between, say, 500 and, let's say, 1000 AD, like this early medieval period, that like the Julian calendar and learning about it, it was, it was at the nucleus, it was a crux, it was at the centre of medieval learning? Yes, very much so, in the sense that, of course, the early medieval monastic curriculum was relatively limited, right? Most of the things that were taught at monastic schools were geared towards divine worship. And so the compotus, the study of the calendar, was the one element or the one link in the chain where there was an actual opportunity and a leeway for studying astronomy and for studying areas of knowledge that fell outside the confines of divine worship. And that's why the compotus was of paramount importance before sort of the Western curriculum changes thanks to influences from the outside. And so, as you correctly say, it's especially between 500 and 1000 that the competitors reign supreme as a learned discipline that allows for the study of the natural world and for the study of astronomy. And the natural world, which leads into the next thing, which is this other Roman author, Pliny. He also seems to be really popular at this time too. Yes, exactly. I mean, computistical authors in particular, of course, try to read everything they can get their hands on that would elucidate the background, again, of the Roman calendar and also of astronomical phenomena more generally. And Pliny was simply one of those texts at hand already in the early Middle Ages that enjoyed a certain degree of circulation across Western Europe already in, in, in the 8th and 9th century. And uh, Bede in particular makes heavy use of Pliny for precisely that reason. Now, Philip, with Pliny with the Julian calendar, let's move on to, this seems like one of the great confusions, one of the great struggles of this period, and I've got the, the name here, the Vernal Equinox, and trying to figure out this date in the calendar. I know it's a huge topic, I know it's a huge question for me to ask, but talk us through why there is such confusion, why there is such debate over the, this early medieval period about trying to figure out when the date of Easter is. Yes, I mean, the basic problem with the date of feast day is that it's a mobile feast day, which means that its date relative to the Julian calendar changes each year, and that's an artifact of the Jewish background to Christianity. Easter is essentially the Christian version of Passover. Jesus uh, died and resurrected at the time of Passover, and that's why these events are commemorated every year notionally at the time of Passover. So Christians from the beginning used a, a lunar calendar, 
to pinpoint the right time to commemorate these events. They, at the beginning, was used simply the Jewish calendar, which was a lunar calendar, like most ancient calendars. And as time went by, they created lunar cycles, which simply were there to identify the dates of the new moon in the Julian calendar, so they could find the appropriate time to celebrate Easter. The thing is that this is an arithmetically and astronomically relatively complex problem, which allows for a number of different solutions. And so uh, during late antiquity and also still in the early Middle Ages, you have a multiplicity of methods that are being used, and it takes a while until Christians have sort of out and hashed out the correct way of going about celebrating Easter and it takes a while until they're all on the same page. So there's so-called Easter controversies in the early history of the church. But to cut a long story short, some stage a canonical way of celebrating Easter is established, which in Ecclesiastical tradition is traced back to the Council of Nicaea of 325. That's actually slightly apocryphal, but it was widely believed that this is the council which established the canonical set of rules. And according to this canonical definition, Easter always has to be the first Sunday after the first full moon that falls on or after the spring equinox. The spring equinox for ecclesiastical computistical purposes was always supposed to be the 21st of March. And so in the ecclesiastical tradition, that's the date of the equinox. There's a bit of a confusion going on in this early period, partly because there are other methods of Easter wrecking and also because there's a long-standing Roman tradition of putting the equinox a bit later on the 25th of March. But for all intents and purposes, in, a, in an Easter reckoning context, it's always the 21st of March, which would have been the correct date roughly in the 3rd or 4th century. But of course, what's crucial is the fact that an actual equinox here, the, the interval between the two equinoxes, is about 11 minutes shorter than an average Julian year. And so over time, the date of the equinox starts to move, to shift towards the beginning of the year very gradually, at a rate of roughly one day every 130 years. So there are two problems going on in the early Middle Ages. There's a slight confusion as to what the canonical tradition is supposed to be, but more importantly, over time, as we approach the high Middle Ages, there's a growing awareness that, in fact, the equinox has moved away from its canonical, its legal date. And that, of course, is one of the nuclei from which a calendar reform debate starts to develop, starting maybe in the 12th century. Yes, Philip, I mean, talk us through, I mean, let's go from, let's say, 1,000 to 1,200 at the moment, like, like that next bit in the high Middle Ages, like... The Julian calendar at this time, the background that you've just laid out there, it sounds like it's paving the way for further scrutiny in this period. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is a very drawn out and complex development, but uh, a crucial set of changes that occurs in the high Middle Ages is the knowledge transfer from Arabic to Latin, which is, of course, a characteristic hallmark of the history of science in the 12th century. And as a result of this knowledge transfer, new astronomical parameters became available in Latin Europe and also new astronomical theories. And all of a sudden, it was possible to really articulate in writing what the problem was, the fact that an actual solar year is a bit shorter than a Julian year. It was, it was possible to articulate also the reason why the lunar cycle no longer properly aligned with the visible full and new moons. That was another era of the ecclesiastical calendar, which at least in theory meant that Easter was celebrated on the wrong date in many years. If you take the astronomical criteria for Easter very seriously, the conclusion was inescapable that Easter was often celebrated on the wrong day. And so you have an error in the lunar calendar, you have an error in the solar calendar, and from the 12th century onwards, you also have the astronomical knowledge necessary to address the problem and to propose potential solutions, which eventually then leads to the Gregorian reform uh, at the end of the 16th century. Yes, Philip, I know it's a huge question. I know your, your main focus is this medieval period, but I will ask of it now as the Joe blogs, as the general o overview. I mean, how do we therefore get from, let's say, uh, this period in like the 12th century to the 16th century, the late 16th century, 
and the ultimate official reform of the Julian calendar into what we now know today as the Gregorian calendar. Right, so there's a long period of around 400 years that is characterized by debates back and forth of how to implement a reform or whether it's practical to implement a reform. We have to bear in mind that uh, the papacy doesn't always enjoy the same degree of influence and power in the context of Latin Christianity. The question really is who actually has the authority to reform the calendar and how far does this authority actually reach? And there are also practical problems. As I mentioned earlier, you have a calendar which is really there for the celebration of Easter, right? If that Easter problem had not existed, Latin Christians could have been perfectly complacent about the fact that the equinox sort of drifts through the year. But because of the importance of Easter, they had to somehow address that problem. At least many people felt that way. And so you have two components, a lunar and a solar component, and they don't deteriorate exactly the same way. So to have a reform calendar that would accurately track both the sun and the moon would have required a lot of complexity. And the question is, how complex do you want your calendar to be so it's still intelligible to normal people or to the priests who have to operate with this calendar? That's one problem. The other problem is that it may be easy for the church to reform the method of Easter reckoning. But if that reform requires interventions in the civil calendar, which of course also governs the economy, it governs legal issues, it governs social life, then all of a sudden you have to interfere with the purview and the remit of secular rulers, right? Uh, can the Pope just take days out of the calendar? Things of that nature, of course, have to be addressed because uh, if a year is shorter, that will have repercussions for tax collections, for the validity of contracts. There are all sorts of repercussions that follow from that. And, and these problems, to a large extent, explain why it takes 400 years for a decision to be definitively made and, and for steps to be taken. And, and uh, that takes us to the Council of Trent in the second half of the 16th century. It takes us to the time of the Counter-Reformation and finally to the papacy of Gregory XIII, who felt that he had the authority and the influence and the means necessary to make sure that Catholic rulers, at least, would go along with whatever reform he proposed. Given that length of time it takes to get to that point, Philip, I'm guessing it also takes a lot of time for then that official announcement, like this change, this reform, to diffuse, to spread across the world. Yes, it takes a long time. You usually date the Gregorian reform to 1582, but in fact, most territories which adopted this new calendar only did so in the subsequent years. And of course, if you look at the bigger picture, some of them only in the 18th, 19th, or early 20th century. It takes a long time precisely because of the political fragmentation of the Christian world, because of the schism between Protestants and Catholics, also the schism between the Catholic Church in the West and the Orthodox and Eastern churches further afield, right? So there's, of course, no unanimity. But at least Gregory XIII could count on the loyalty of Catholic rulers in his time. And he could also count on the logistics being available, print technology and communication avenues that made it possible to disseminate the new calendar and make sure everybody knows what the new rules are supposed to be. That in and of itself would have been a huge challenge only a century or two earlier in a pre-print world. Ah, of course, the coming of printing and all of that. I mean, is there anywhere in the world today as we're now so used to the Gregorian calendar. But is there anywhere that Julius Caesar's Julian calendar is still in active use? Yes, so if you look at the Orthodox and Eastern Apostolic Churches, it's a bit of a complicated patchwork, but there are so-called old calendarists in these various churches and, 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 and Christian spheres where the old Julian calendar is still used 
and others have adopted usually a different version of the Gregorian calendar, which is to say that they went along with the elimination of days from the Julian calendar, but they implemented a slightly more astronomically sophisticated leap year rule in order not to be accused of simply copying the Gregorian calendar. And in fact, the introduction of this new Julian calendar or reform calendar early in the 20th century was a cause of schism and conflict within Orthodox churches in Greece and Russia and other parts of the Eastern Christian world. I mean, we think, uh, I know I do, you think some of the Julius Caesars, you think of this warrior figure of the late Roman Republic, this tyrannical figure, this great warlord, renowned for his campaigns, for his battles, for his politics. But can we say that actually one of the greatest legacies, one of the longest lasting legacies of Julius Caesar is all to do with time and this calendar? I think that's undoubtedly true, yes, especially if you just look at political reforms. That's the one that really stayed. Of course, if you think of Caesar as a military general, then I think his conquest of Gaul and his winning the civil war had repercussions that were just as important in the long term. But as a politician, I think that's his most lasting legacy for sure. One last question from me, and it's kind of going on a tangent, but Philip, I'm a big Alexander the Great and Hellenistic successors fan. That's my area of, of interest. And one thing which has always, I guess, puzzled me, interested me, is that sometimes in this period, let's say Hellenistic period or the classical period, you get certain events that have a particular date attached to them, saying this event happened on this date. And a good example, let's say the Battle of Galgamela, Apparently there's a uh, lunar eclipse 10 days before and people have been able to date that eclipse so then to say the battle occurred 10 days later on the 1st of October. Now with the whole changing of the calendars and the different calendars that we've had over these past two millennia, two and a half millennia, how accurate is it that we can say like even if they mention a lunar eclipse or something that this happened on this day today? Yeah, it's perfectly accurate. And, and part of the reason why this works so well, the, these computations of ancient eclipses, is because astronomers today use a proleptic Julian calendar. They use Caesar's calendar projected into the distant past. I mean, there's also a Julian day count, which counts the days successively or in sequence from a date, I think, in 4714 BC. But it's all based on the assumption that the Julian calendar existed before it actually existed. That's sort of the framework within these astronomical computations are performed to this day. So astronomy to this day still uses the Julian calendar to... Wow, amazing. Once again, that long-lasting legacy. Philip, it's been a joy to get you on the podcast. Uh, Last but certainly not least, you've written a book all about the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and all of that. That is true, yes. Uh, My book is called Scandalous Era, which was published uh, by OUP in 2018, and it essentially tells the story that got us from Julius Caesar to the Gregorian reform of 1582, everything that happened in between, essentially. Brilliant. Well, Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Big pleasure. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode all about how Julius Caesar changed time. I'll be honest, I absolutely love that title. It's such an awesome episode to finish off 2021 on. I mean, what a year it's been, but bring on 2022. Now, if you want more Ancients content, you know what I'm going to say, then why not subscribe to our awesome Ancients newsletter? You can sign up, you can subscribe via the link in the description below. Now, I will see you in the next episode. I will see you in 2022. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.